broadcast out of New York City. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, October 20th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 22 the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include finally cutting through the confusion about Ebola. And spirituality can be misdiagnosed as mental illness. Now what? Yeah, isn't that something? Chances are you're having more colonoscopies than are recommended. Common painkillers combined with other common medications can cause GI bleeding. That's gastrointestinal bleeding. Right. And what's the major cause of fatal allergic reactions? This might surprise you. You know, the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control need to get their acts together regarding Ebola. It seems that their goal is to get everybody in a panic with lots of confusion, and they can't agree on how it spreads, and they don't know how to treat it, but project that experimental drugs like CMAP may be the answer. Although Mission accomplished. <laughs> They've definitely achieved that. Even though there's a shortage of them. Mm-hmm. That sounds familiar. So what do you believe, and what can you believe regarding Ebola? That's the billion-dollar question. Well, maybe it is, but I think it's fairly straightforward. You know what strikes me is, is uncomfortable is that I want to believe our government. I want to believe the CDC and the World Health Organization and the FDA. And I want to believe that there's a problem that we're in working on in Africa called Ebola. It's a very, very serious fatal disease. I want to believe that we're there because we want to help the African people and that we want to prevent some kind of impending pandemic that we're all frightened of thinking is inevitable. I want to believe that. But because of the way the government has dealt with so many, all these organizations have dealt with so many previous situations, like, for example, the swine flu back in 2009, I've lost confidence. I don't feel like we can believe what they're telling us. And we have to do our own homework, which isn't simple. I know. We've been talking about this now for, what, a month, it seems like, or maybe it's been more than that. Mm -hmm. But actually, you know, things like this, that the World Health Organization says um, Ebola is not airborne, but they say that it spreads through the air from coughing and sneezing droplets. (laughs) Now, that's confusing. Of course it is. I think the major way that this disease spreads, and it doesn't have high infectivity. It's actually quite low compared to most respiratory-borne illnesses. If you get a big dose of microbes, does it matter how it gets you from it's a bo- if it's a bodily fluid? Of course not. But people are really scared because it's of- a horrible disease and there's a high fatality rate. Well, when you've got 50 to 80% or 90% of people dying from it if you get it, that's frightening. But is this really an epidemic? I mean, we're talking about 4,000 people maybe who have died from the disease. Now, we've got a lot of other diseases. sounds like a lot of people. Well, talk about 100,000 or a million. 
when you're talking about diseases like vitamin A deficiencies and what it causes in people's immune system in underdeveloped countries. Or look at malaria or look at tuberculosis. I mean, they're totally different levels of importance. Now, I think it's a good thing, and I'd like to believe it, like I said earlier, that it's a good thing that our government cares about the people in Africa and it cares that this could turn into an epidemic, and certainly some attention should be delivered that way. But when you've got 50 or 100 other diseases that are far more impressive than this, the question that turns to my mind, which is turned to be skeptical of what I hear, is what's in it for who's ever involved? Who's got what to gain? Well, yeah, and, and we've talked about that before. Um, but well, if we are. don't know how, but I have another question. If we don't know how to treat it, mm-hmm. why do we say that if our healthcare workers get it while they're helping in West Africa, that we'll fly them back to the U.S. and take care of them? That's a good question, and there's a good answer. The problem is, is it, it's probably more dangerous to be in an African hospital that's not well-equipped to handle the problems that have to do with spread of disease than it is to be quarantined. And even that's a problem when you quarantine a lot of people who have been exposed in tight quarters. So in other words, if they come here, then we'll do like triage isolations to control it. We'll take care of the spread of infection because we're pretty good at doing that. But we're not even that good at diagnosing it. I mean, look at the person that came over that died in, in Texas. That person who had Ebola... And came to the emergency room in Texas. And they turned him away. Home, okay. And they, they'd missed the diagnosis, which is not really a big surprise because who makes the diagnosis of Ebola in the U.S.? Except for he told them that he had just come from West Africa. Well, it yeah. seems like the thought might have occurred to them. Well, if doctors don't have much experience with something, all the reading that they do in textbooks and all the movies they see about it in their training isn't the same thing well, as would experience. A, would a blood test show it? Yes, it would. So they probably maybe they don't have the blood test. Well, the, the, it would be something. I, I would imagine most hospitals don't have the PCR test, okay, that's done that way, or do the cultures. So when this person came back to the hospital a few days later, he was toast, and he died because the disease was too far advanced and too severe. Okay, here's another question that a lot of people are asking. Now, the CDC says that all the passengers that are traveling out of West Africa are being effectively screened. So how do they screen? Yeah, well, that's a great question. How can you screen when you're in the incubation period? There are no symptoms. There's no fever. Your blood tests are normal. Everything is not, you can't find anything wrong with these people. And if the incubation period is up to 21 days, that's three weeks, a lot of people who have been exposed to Ebola have gone all over the planet for the last 40 or 50 years. This is nothing new. You think Ebola's just been confined to Africa? It's been spread in lots of places, but it goes undiagnosed. I mean, even when we're on high alert. So then how do people get over it? I mean, if, if there's such a high fatality rate that can be up to 90%. Well, I think if you can give them as much care as possible to support them. We're probably a lot better at that than some tent in Africa where they don't have a lot of supplies and where they're getting reinfected. And I mean, it's, it's, it's not the same thing. Okay. Uh, here's, here's another one that everybody keeps asking. In fact, Donald Trump 
mm. was just quoted. In fact, no. I saw a video where he says, just prevent the flights out of West Africa. Thanks, Donald. You're so helpful. So would that, <laughs> well, and he's not the only one that I've heard say that. So would that protect us? I don't think so. I mean, there are lots of well, ways. Well, if we keep it in West Africa. Well, what are you going to do? Prevent a flight that goes from Nigeria to San Francisco? What about those people that go from Nigeria to Portugal or Nigeria to Spain or Nigeria to England? Yeah, well, there or was France? somebody that went to Spain. Well, I think, that's going to that happen. A nurse. That you, was a... So, I mean, Donald ought to stick to making money. He's not a okay, doctor so how or an epidemiologist. That, so, why wouldn't that work? Because you're not going to be able to prevent all those other flights. So, when somebody goes maybe to the airport, and they're coming to San Francisco direct from someplace in Africa, you might be able to stop that. But you can't stop somebody who's in the incubation period from going to another country first and then coming across because you're not going to be able to check all those people. And even if you did, you wouldn't find it. I think that's what happened to the guy that died in Texas. What do you mean? I think he went someplace else first. Well, could easily be. So, I mean... Yes, you want to try and stop the disease from spreading, but if you have an incubation period that can be up to three weeks, that's a real problem. It's not practical. It's not practical, and it won't work. Okay, so back to this thing that you were alluding to about the about the money. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about this, this drug that they're trying to encourage people to think about, which is very similar to what happened with the H1N1 uh, swine flu. But they're saying that this that it... Let's talk about what compassionate use regulation is. Well, that's a good thing, and that allows uh, a doctor to be able to use a drug that's not tested well uh, in somebody who has a life-threatening illness to do something rather than nothing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that doing something is going to be better because if the side effects are going to be worse than the disease or they're going to take you over the point from which you can come back and recover because it's doing something to you that's negative, that's a real problem. But the idea is we want to do something. And if you've got an 80% chance of dying, you want to do pretty much anything. You're willing to risk. And it becomes your legal. Your might fall out or well, something all, horrible. Well, all kinds of things can go wrong. It can suppress your immune system. It can cause tissue necrosis. It could affect the, the way the heart pumps blood. It could do a lot of things to your lungs that would, would make it negative. It can bl- cause you kid- kidney failure. I mean, all these untested drugs are a problem. But it's not like we're just taking drugs that haven't been looked at to some extent. Some of these drugs are promising, and they might be useful. But again, I put on my skeptical hat and say, can we really trust that this is the right thing to do? Because there is a conflict of interest that's loud and clear, as there was with the swine flu vaccine Money. and with the swine flu drugs, particularly Tamiflu, which haven't been shown to be that effective at doing anything except costing governments a ton of money and forcing people to take the vaccine that hasn't been proven to even work. Okay, now, with the flu, they talked about um, how they didn't really know exactly what strain it was and they kind of would have to guess. Well, this one... They say that there might possibly be a strain mutation. It might be a different strain or yeah. a different type. Well, there are of five Ebola, different strains. Different types of okay, yeah. of which three are, are not a big problem. There are two that are. And has it developed some kind of genetic change, some kind of antigenic shift that's big enough uh, to cause it to be uh, more virulent in some way? I mean, so that, for example, it becomes like a respiratory illness. I mean, if it did that, it was something like 
influenza spread, we'd be in deep trouble. Because all of a sudden, this horrible disease would be passed by people coughing on each other, and it would spread like wildfire. But that's not the case. But they did say, though, like I said earlier, about it can spread through the air from coughing and sneezing droplets. Well, that's how you get a cold or something. Yeah, but it doesn't typically spread that way. Can it happen? Yes. Somebody hucks up a big one and you inhale it or it gets in your nose, I think I'd worry about it. If you're just around somebody who has Ebola, I probably wouldn't want to be coughed on or sneezed on for sure. But that's not the typical way that the disease spreads. And we have a lot of experience over the, since 1976 of outbreaks of Ebola in many different countries or, or many different places in Africa. And they're small, small ill. I mean, there was illnesses that don't affect a lot of people. And then it just kind of goes away. So maybe somewhere between 10 and 100 or or 200 people who are affected by the disease, and in six months it's gone. So it's not spreading as an airborne disease, even though it's possible to spread by Well, I wouldn't airborne. want to sit next to somebody on the airplane that You wouldn't, but, but you've got to look at the history of the disease and know how does it behave. It's not typically an airborne spread disease. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at that. And again, you know, use your common sense. And that's why we see... The people who are treating people, the medical people who are treating people in Africa are wearing what looks like spacesuits because they don't want to take any chances of, of, of getting that disease. It's too lethal. Well, and then, too, these investigational drugs, which are drugs that are outside of, of trials, really, yeah. and, and, and what would be happening if they started using them on people is that that would be the trial. And I guess Mm -hmm. they don't feel that there's a whole lot to lose because these people have a high likelihood of dying from it anyway. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that caught my attention was how they said that there was a shortage of the drugs. Oh, sure. That's fear. Because that's what they, yeah, because that's what they did with the H1N1. And then everybody stands in line to get it because they want to be the lucky one to get it because there were people fighting to get Tamiflu. And it was like, what? Are you kidding me? It cuts off one half of one day of a flu illness. And then people are in the hospital. If you don't give it to them in the first 24 to 48 hours, it simply does nothing. And when the uh, Cochrane people looked at this, which is a big international organization that evaluates the value of a certain procedure right. or treatment, they felt like the, the drug company, Roach, was being dishonest with them because they wouldn't, they wouldn't give away... The research that they had done, they said it's private. We don't have to show and it. What not was the downside yet. of taking the Tamiflu with it? Oh, people were dying. Some of them were dying from suicides, or or uh, from the thinking. Tamiflu. Yes, I mean there were problems with Tamiflu. It's not a drug you just want to take. Why would it make you suicidal? You tell me. It's an out, called an outcome study. You take the drug, you see what Gee. happens to people, and that's one of the things that they were doing. That happened a lot in Japan as they were reporting that. So it's not just like, well, I might have the flu. Let's take a little Tamiflu. I mean, the Cochrane Association basically said they they didn't have any confidence in it. So who are the winners and the losers from Ebola? Well, that's a good question. You've got to look at the people who's where's, where's the money? You know, follow the dollars. Follow you the track money. that, you'll find out. Uh, and so you're looking at who's the big winner? It would be the pharmaceutical industry. They have two ways to do that. One is the vaccine, and the other is to make drugs. That the other, and the other one, I guess, would be researchers because they Absolutely. would make money to d- be doing more research. Well, they're getting grants. Okay, now it'll be easier to get a grant. So it's like getting a job. And there would be liberal uh, funds doled out because that, that would work that way. 
Medical centers, too, would, would get a, a bonus from that because usually when researchers do a research uh, study, about half of that money goes to the institution, like to UCSF or Harvard or the medical centers there. The other half, or, or approximately that much, goes to do the research. And then the FDA would fast-track those drugs. So that means more money coming into the, into the FDA because the pharmaceutical industry plays, pays big bucks to be able to get a drug through the FDA quicker. Is, oh, yeah, that's and that's right. And that brings it to market sooner, and so they can afford to pay a ton of money, and they do. Then the FDA becomes dependent on it, and when it stops, they got problems because they can't function it. Money should never go from big pharma to the FDA. It so, should go to an outside source so there's none of this conflict of interest that occurs there on a routine basis. So how does the World Health Organization and the CDT, CDC and politicians, how do they benefit? Well, the politicians are the ones that benefit the most because what happens is they're providing legislation that enables money to be dispersed in certain ways. So... Big Pharma pays politicians a ton of money every year to to gain their confidence and to support right. them when they can. So, well, what well, about who and CDC? Well, the World Health Organization uh, and 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 politics there they're going to be creating trends that will be affecting certain groups, like the researchers, the medical institutions the NIH, who get funds for doing research on this, so there'd be a conflict of interest from them as well because money will come back into them. And CDC? CDC is the same thing. I mean, they, they, they have a revolving door between the pharmaceutical industry, okay, that is very effective. I mean, look at how many times you've talked about Dr. Julie Gerberding, who was yeah. the head of the CDC. Where does she work now? Works for, for Merck. Yeah, pharmaceutical And, and she, hand, she handles what? Their immunization <laughs> department. And how much money does she make? If it's like what other people in her position make, it's seven figures. I mean, it's huge. Well, okay, so another winner would be the people in West Africa because they're getting help. Absolutely. They, they, I mean, that would be, that would be compassionate and, and the right thing to do. But when you've got 50 other diseases that are more serious than that, that are not being dealt with, you have to ask yourself the question, why now? Why Ebola? Why now? Why not do one of the other 50 diseases where far more people are dying from it than that? Okay, let's talk about the losers, maybe like us, the U.S. taxpayers. Yeah, we're funding all this stuff to create vaccines and drugs uh, that maybe will be useful. I mean, they promise to be useful, but look at what happened with the, with the swine flu vaccine and with Tamiflu. That was turned out to be a scam. It didn't work, and we paid for it. In fact, we protected the pharmaceutical industry from that. By telling them that we weren't going to prosecute, nobody could prosecute them if there were side effects from the vaccine because they were preventing a pandemic right. that would – I mean, it was just crazy. Well, the other way we lose is with panic because people get panicked. Well, then we start making bad decisions, right? Yeah. And, and, of course, that's a big deal. And then also U.S. health care. Huh? Well, because money's right. more more money spent on Ebola, and then that means that there's less money spent on other diseases. Well, that's right. And do we really want that? So you've got to follow the dollars and figure who has what to gain. And when you figure that out, it changes everything. And then, you know, is this paranoia? Is this, uh, this is another uh, uh, example of, of a conspiracy theory? Well, you'd like to think that that couldn't happen, but I'm afraid that it does. It's happened in the past, and now we're primed to be asked to consider that once again. 
Well, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Zabuda here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on ways to naturally boost your mood. And when we come back, we'll be talking about spirituality can be misdiagnosed as mental illness. That's really weird. So what do we do with that? How are you feeling today? I have some ways to naturally boost your mood that are natural to keep those stress levels in check. You know, whether it's eating clean, exercising regularly, smiling to strangers, you know, random act of kindness, lifting your mood is really achievable. So I'm going to talk about some ways to naturally boost your mood. One of them is drinking tea. Tea can contain L-theanine, which is uh, particularly found in green tea. It's an antidepressant and stress reducer. And also it's known to decrease anxiety and PMS symptoms, and it can increase your concentration and memory. Then there are herbal teas that can be soothing, things like lemon balm tea that soothes stress, chamomile for calming anxiety, or go-to koala for uh, improving oxygen to your brain and stimulating your mood. Then, of course, there's caffeine that's found in the black tea or a cup of coffee, I guess, if caffeine doesn't bother you, if you need to, you know, give yourself a little boost for a mood raiser. Now, find something that makes you laugh, you know, like maybe a baby or a child. That often helps. And laughing not only relaxes your body, it boosts your immunity and it stimulates your endorphins, you know, those feel-good chemicals. Read some jokes. You know what's easier nowadays on the internet? It's full of them. A lot of the YouTube things and all that, and, and, and or to watch some comedy or um, surround yourself with people who tell stories and make you laugh. You know, pick out those people in your life. <laughs> right on. Norman Cousins, right? That's it. Exercise. You know, working out's known to enhance your mood. And your brain releases endorphins and serotonin and dopamine and adrenaline, and those chemicals improve your mood. So when you're not feeling so great or you're kind of down in the dumps, just start moving that body. Right on. And promote kindness. When you're having a hard day, the best pick-me-up is making somebody else feel good. So compliment somebody. Do some volunteer work. Help a friend. Do a, a random act of kindness or, you know, those kind of things are contagious. The Dalai Lama said that it helps us to develop our inner happiness and peace. So helping others is really helping yourself feel good. Absolutely. Do something for you also. Sprinkle some kindness on you, you know, like (laughs) maybe take a class that you want to do or get yourself a bouquet of flowers or read an uplifting book. You know what to do that makes you feel good. You bet. Uh, Beauty rituals. Those are mood boosters, you know, put some essential oils in your bath to promote a sense of peace and maybe get a massage or a facial or just do it yourself. Alter your space. You might want to rearrange your furniture, redecorate a little bit, just to create some harmony in your room. And changing your space a lot of times feels renewing. Or go clean a room or organize it. And communication, expressing yourself openly and honestly and calling a friend maybe and telling them how much you appreciate them or to handwrite a letter to somebody that you love. And uh, communicating clearly will help to alleviate your tension. So maybe it's a good idea to set some reminders to be in touch with some of your family and friends. Put it on your calendar so you'll actually do it. And then also meditate versus, you know, maybe go out in nature too or take some deep breaths and just be present. Um, Alleviate stress will help you to focus and it'll 
you know, get your creativity going and it'll enhance your relationships and uh, promote uh, positivity in your life. So just be. And then last but not least is a little bit of dark chocolate. Ah, (laughs) I knew that was going to come up somewhere. It's rich in tryptophan, which enhances your mood, especially the raw cacao. It contains endorphins that make you feel good, but you can't overdo it. (laughs) You want overdo the cacao. But you can't overdo the chocolate. Yeah, I know that one. I'm kind of a chocoholic myself. <laughs> if you're a psychic or a visionary and you see a psychologist, did you know that you could be diagnosed as schizophrenic or bipolar? So how do we know if spiritual visions are real or they're hallucinations? Depending on the spirituality of a psychologist, a patient may be misdiagnosed and inappropriately given treatment for mental illness rather than recognizing their spiritual gifts or their spiritual emergence. Absolutely. You know, we had this big shift uh, a couple of hundred years ago where science came into the picture. We really stuck with science by itself. And what we didn't understand, we relegated back to the realm of the church. If you didn't, if we couldn't understand spiritual things that happened or things that we couldn't explain, we just threw them out and said, well, if we don't know about them, we can't address them. That's sort of like a baby or a, a child that's playing and saying, well, I'm going to take my marbles and go home if you don't play my way. But the fact is, is that these are real things. And we all, pretty much all of us, are into a place where we, we believe in a God or a universal power that makes things work. Some people call it a higher power. Sure, you call it lots of things. But maybe we should just start out by defining and distinguishing between schizophrenic, bipolar, delusional, or post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, those are, those are, it's very difficult sometimes to make that differential diagnosis. But in general, it's fairly straightforward, but we always go back to what are the norms in our culture. Uh, there would be some cultures where it would be normal to have visions, and to see things that other people couldn't see. And you could define that as schizophrenia if you want. Well, there's TV shows on it. People make money from just sharing their visions. Well, that's true. And we have a part even of our military that looks at this kind of thing to try and understand what the enemy is doing at certain times. So it's like having remote vision. And then there's people that are able to channel a message from a quote-unquote entity. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, look at the example of John of God, right? You know, I was reading, too, that I don't know who said it, but that they thought that schizophrenia was evil channeling. Oh, well, people have all kinds of ideas. I don't think I would take that one on as, as having much meaning. I would say that when people are under enough stress, you can have a break from being able to tell what's real from what's not real. You take somebody, put them in a prisoner of war camp, and you totally give them a bad time for a few years, they may start to hallucinate, particularly if they're isolated and left alone. Mm-hmm. I mean, put anybody in a deprivation tank, yeah. and you start hallucinating. So hallucinations don't necessarily mean that it's something that's unreal or bad. And, you know, just because we can't do it or we don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not so. Like, there are intuitives that claim that they can see inside the body. And they can say some rather remarkable things. I've worked with some people who are psychics, and they very often come to the same conclusion about what problems people are having as I do after I've done a workup with a CT scan. So these things happen, and the question is, is can we give credibility to it? When you look at the psychiatry uh, field itself, there is no place for the role of spirit. 
because they don't have it. Although we're beginning to do something called transpersonal psychology, which is another way of saying it includes spirit. It's like a spiritual psychology. Mm. And, of course, that makes far more sense. I mean, why would you want to throw away the power of prayer? Well, you know, for years we've been talking about messages that people got Mm -hmm. in the Bible. Sure. I mean, look about the Virgin Mary. You know, the angel came and told her she was going to have a baby. Right. Was she schizophrenic? And also there's a lot of a lot of uh, biblical stories where the angels appear or somebody appears in a dream and a lot of people say that they they get messages from dreams. There's a TV show that's called uh, The Ghost in My Child. I've been hearing it advertised lately. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of people that have these kind of feelings. I mean, I don't I don't know what to think about a lot of these things, but I mean, why not be open to it. What about possession or past lives or past memories and meditation messages and reincarnation and psychic healings and miracles and auras and dolphins even? Sure. Well, the interesting thing about that is that when we come to understand things, we find that science and spirituality are always 100% congruent because they can't be anything else. It depends on what point of view that you take and whether you're a scientist or somebody who more in, trust their intuition. And I have learned as a doctor that my most important information doesn't come from science because in actuality, most of the science that we do is not good science at all. In fact, the vast majority of it is trash, according to a lot of authorities that have, have looked at that because of the conflicts of interest, the studies that are done, and the way that they're interpreted because of, of those conflicts of interest. So it's a good idea to keep an open mind about Getting information. I mean, where do you get ideas? Why do you wake up in the middle of the night with things like that, uh, with ideas? All these things are fascinating. Anyway, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Sabuti here with Nurse Vicki. And we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio. And when we come back, we'll be talking about chances are you're having more colonoscopies than are recommended. Whoops. Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. Colonoscopies. Well, colonoscopies are not a new topic for us, but the fact that they're being recommended more often by endoscopists than the recommended guidelines is something to be aware of. Yeah. I mean, you may think that your doctor's being extra careful to rule out colon cancer in your best interests, but often their conflicts of interest can ignore the risks that are not just from the anesthesia, but from perforations and or bleeding. Yeah, it's a big deal. And there's a conflict of interest that's involved anytime a doctor is doing something that generates income. And I'm not accusing doctors of deliberately trying to do something to uh, increase their income by doing colonoscopies a little bit early. But those that are real aggressive, Perhaps they're doing a little bit more in the way of the business side of it than really being concerned. Uh, 
And well, studies were, have shown that they're being overdone. So, well, yeah, I mean that was that was just what was done. It was in the uh, September issue of the Journal of General Internal Medicine. They looked at a study f- uh, from the Massachusetts General Hospital, and they looked at the at the people that were fifty and and over uh, that were supposed to be screened every ten years, and maybe a little bit more frequency if they frequently if they had a an adenoma that was a precursor for a colon cancer. And they looked at almost 1,500 adults between the ages of 50 and 65 over 10 years, and they found that of those about uh, 1,500 people, there were about 900 cases where they did early uh, colonoscopies at a, at a time that was only six years after the initial procedure. So, so they found that, that 49% of the follow-up screenings were done earlier than recommended, uh-huh. and there were like between this 50 to 74-year-old age group, they had one too many colonoscopies. So in other words, they they ended up with an extra colonoscopy that they didn't need by speeding it up. By following those guidelines. So is it because the doctor is really They concerned? weren't following the guidelines. They were doing their own guidelines. I understand that. But maybe <laughs> these some of these doctors are thinking, it can't hurt to do it a little bit more often. And when you see a colon cancer in somebody and they didn't have a colonoscopy, it rings your bells. And you start thinking, well, did I do everything that I should do to have been able to prevent this cancer? But aren't there statistics something like one in 500 have a problem? So you one have to in do 200 colonoscopies are going to have a problem if it's just the average population as a screening approach. And one in 200 will also have a problem with a bleed or a perforation that puts you in the hospital and requires transfusions. And occasionally somebody even dies from it. So you don't want to just do them willy-nilly. Plus, they cost money. It's not particularly pleasant. And why do more than what you need? Now, if you exercise regularly and your vitamin D levels are normal, it may be 1 in 400 or 1 in 500 people. And you eat enough fiber too, huh? Yes. Then you'll probably have uh, a much less chance of having something that turns up on a colonoscopy that makes it really worth doing. But on the whole, what they're saying is that we're doing too many colonoscopies. And, of course, the reasons vary depending on who's involved and and what's happening. So many people just accept what their doctors recommend. I mean, I could understand if a person had... I can understand that. I can understand if a person had symptoms or if there was a history of it in their family. That's no longer a screening colonoscopy. That's a colonoscopy that should be done because there are symptoms that alerts you that something's wrong and you don't know what it is and you want to be sure it's not something that's important, like a cancer or maybe diverticulitis or some kind of bleeding uh, problem that you have there. There are lots of things that you can discover. Or if somebody's had a colonoscopy and they had like an adenoma, a precancerous little tumor or something. Then maybe a few years later you would want to do a second uh, examination. But But many of those people people don't come back (laughs) and get their follow-ups. Well, I think there's sloppy record-keeping too on the part of a lot of gastroenterologists. And so the ones that need to be followed the most, which are the ones that had adenomas, which are precursors for cancer, they need to come back within a few years to be rechecked again to make sure that they're not regrowing. Plus, when you find one uh, adenoma, very often there are others that you didn't find. It's not like just because you're looking in there, you find everything that, that's there. I mean, you may do a, a careful examination and miss another uh, polyp that's in there that's an adenoma that can lead to cancer. So doing it a few years later is a good idea for people who have abnormalities. 
Well, these guidelines, okay, these are national guidelines. Mm -hmm. Recommend over 50, you should be screened every 10 years. Mm -hmm. But... And there's controversy about that. Yeah, do you think that, may be that when, as soon as somebody hits 50, they need to go make their colonoscopy appointment? Personally, I don't. I think if the person is generally healthy, they don't have a family history of a problem, they have no symptoms at all, their vitamin D level is normal, and they're fit, no, I don't recommend that. But I tell them that that is the recommendation of almost every gastroenterologist so your in town, and I don't agree with that, and you, they can make their own choice about it. So, of course, if they went to the... Uh, GI guy, the GI oh, doctor is going to tell him to do it. Almost always. Yeah. Well, most people I know have had them, and everybody hates them because the prep is so horrible. Well, plus, I mean, if you did it without an anesthetic, it's not very comfortable. And you are getting an anesthetic, and it takes you out for the day at least. And if something goes wrong and there was nothing wrong with you to start with, now you've created a problem. That's called iatrogenic medicine. You certainly don't want to have a problem created by the people that are supposed to be helping you. Well, I've had people tell me that it was more than uncomfortable if they didn't have a pain, something you know, an anesthetic. That oh, it, that sure. It, that That's it, why they that do it, it that, that way. That it hurts. So they're using things like propofol, which is, of course, the same thing that happened to uh, Michael, Jackson. Michael Jackson. That's right. You know, I have a friend that had one done, and she said that the next time she told them, I want to make sure you give me enough anesthetic because last time you didn't and it and it hurt me. And so she said halfway through, they hadn't given her enough. So in order for her to get her point across, she said she just started screaming. <laughs> That'll <laughs> to work. Get, to get her some more. I bet she got propofol at the speed of light. <laughs> Shut that woman up. We can't concentrate. Well, also, I, I've told the story before, but I had a sorority sister whose mother had um, a colonoscopy and she went home and her stomach was getting distended mm, yeah. and she was very uncomfortable. I don't remember what her other symptoms were, but she called the nurse at the hot, at the doctor's office and she reported what her symptoms were. And they said, Oh, don't worry about it. You can come back tomorrow. And this woman died. Yeah. She had a perforation probably. That's right. Well, that well, perforation is when they go through the wall of the intestine. Well, it's a thin a wall. And if you push too hard, uh, you can go right through it. And that, of course, spreads whatever is inside the colon, inside the stool, or the stool inside the colon, to be dispersed inside like the body. Like you get peritonitis, I guess. That's exactly what you get. And, and so that's not, that's not a small issue. So prevention in the healthy lifestyle is actually a better thing than early detection. You want to prevent it. I mean, a lot right. of times people... Are, really pump up early detection as if that's prevention. Well, that's right. And a colonoscopy can be can be either. A lot of the time what you're looking for is early colon cancers, and that, that's not prevention. That's early detection. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing to, if you find it very early because you can cure most of those people. Mm -hmm. So you'd like to not miss those people who have colon cancer. So we're not telling you not to do it. We're just telling you that we want you to see both sides of it, and we want you to understand the benefits and the risks. Exactly. So that you can make an intelligent decision. Well, that's what a lot of for good you because everybody's about. an individual. And then do the best you can to make sure you have a healthy lifestyle, because it's diet, exercise, stress, sleep, uh, making sure you uh, are not exposed to environmental toxins. All those things have a lot to do with whether or not you're going to get sick in the first place. And we have a lot more on this topic on our website, drsaputo.com. Right. Put colonoscopy in the search box and a lot of information will come up that tells you both sides of the story because that's what you want. You don't want something 
that's just presented as a negative entity because that doesn't that doesn't help anything. And we wanted to share with you that these recommended guidelines are not really being honored, that the doctors are frequently ordering them more often than necessary. All right. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki. And it's time for Nurse Vicki's final 2020 tip on the link between allergies and farm antibiotics. And when we come back, we'll be talking about common painkillers combined with other common medications can cause GI bleeding. And lastly, what's the major cause of fatal, fatal allergic reactions? Food allergies are linked to farm antibiotics, and they're used in many pesticides, fungicides, and herbicides that are applied to the fresh fruits and vegetables. And 80% of all U.S. antibiotics are used in healthy livestock and farmed fish. Wow, that's hard to believe, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, food allergies are on the rise, affecting about 15 million Americans, including children, whose food allergies rose 50% just between the years of 1997 and 2011. Wow, that's amazing. And one study showed exposure to antibiotics early in life increased the risk of eczema in children by 40%. Other research has shown how genetically engineered foods and the use of agricultural herbicide glyphosate, glyphosate, which is Roundup, destroys gut bacteria, which promotes food allergies. And an example is a child who suffered a severe allergic reaction from a streptomycin-containing pesticide that was applied to the blueberries in her blueberry pie. This is a rare allergic reaction. However, since food allergies seem to be linked to abnormal gut flora from antibiotics and other chemicals in the food, it's best to eat organic and avoid known allergens in foods that kill beneficial gut bacteria. So right. Yes. So just a few um, things to promote optimal gut and uh, beneficial gut health and beneficial bacteria that might ward off these allergy sensitizations would be things like grains and sugar, genetically engineered foods, processed and pasteurized foods, conventionally raised meats and other animal products, chlorinated tap water, medical antibiotics, NSAIDs, proton pump inhibitors, a big list. things that people take for GERD, antibacterial soap, stress, and pollution. Sure. Yeah, those are things to be aware of. Well, that's a big deal. And, of course, that leads us to the next article that we're going to talk about, which has to do with, in the U.S., the leading and most common cause of death from severe anaphylaxis is caused by what? Medications. So guess who is at most risk for these fatal drug-induced allergic reactions? How about the elderly who are often on several medications? That's right. (laughs) That ups their odds. Well, you use all these antibiotics on, on people, and you wind up killing what? the microbes that are sensitive to that particular antibiotic, which means that's usually your normal flora, the kinds of bacteria that you need there to prevent allergic reactions from occurring. And it leaves what? All the ones that are resistant to it, which is, of course, what you don't want because they often make something called endotoxin, which makes you sick, causes leaky gut and all the other things that lead from that that have to do a lot with autoimmune diseases. So this whole topic is complicated. A lot and of people are surprised to know that the gut is related to uh, allergies. Yeah. Well, I mean, two-thirds of your, your immune system is where? It's in the gut. Most people don't know. Most doctors don't even know that. Yeah. And when that's the case, I mean, what you're looking at is why is it there? And it's because it's the, at the interface of the inside and the outside of the body. It should be there because you may need it 
to be able to uh, defend you against illness. But a lot of the time what happens is you just become hypersensitive because all these things are coming across from the inside of the gut to the inside of the body when you get the so-called leaky gut. So if you want to learn more about that, put leaky gut in the search box at drsaputo.com and learn about it. A recent study showed that the most common deaths were from antibiotics, mm-hmm. followed by radio contrast agents that are used during diagnostic imaging. That's right. Which most people would never think of. Those and are from the, chemotherapy uh, for cancer treatment. Yeah, so those, those are the MRIs that are uh, used with contrast. So when you're looking, for example, to see the extent of a breast cancer that might be in there and you want to do an MRI, you've got to add a little contrast. Of course, that can cause allergic reactions as well as severe kidney problems. So everything has a price to pay for the information that you get from it. So let's talk about some allergy symptoms so people know when to get emergency help for fatal drug anaphylaxis. Well, you should know a lot about that because you had so many of them. Yeah, but mine weren't just from taking medicines. They were from a multitude of things. Many many years ago, it was over 20 years ago. Yeah, the symptoms are the same. So you could get (laughs) hives, you can get swelling of the lips and tongue. It can actually choke you if the tongue gets too big that it doesn't fit and obstruct the airway. Diarrhea, stomach pains. All kinds of things like that. You can lose your blood pressure. You can have wheezing so you can't uh, breathe air in and out. It's like a severe asthma attack. And a lot of those can be fatal. And so people that, you know, if people have warnings or people know that they're allergic to some of these things, then it's good to have adrenaline around. But if you don't, you need to get to the emergency room right away because it's nothing to mess around with. Well, these EpiPen kits a lot of people have. And, of course, what's happening is that we're exposed to so many things in our environment that are not natural to the body and can evoke an immune response they can get out of hand and either cause allergic reactions or autoimmune diseases uh, that can be really severe. Now, people can be allergic to a multitude of things, so it's not just medications, but this is what this particular study is talking about, how, you know. Well, they're looking at the tip of the iceberg, too. I mean, they're talking about maybe there, there were 1,446 allergic reactions uh that occurred that were from medications, but only about 2,500 deaths across the country over about 10 years. Now, that means there are about 150 deaths per year from anaphylaxis. Give me a break. That's so short and underestimated. It's a joke. But then part of that is because the U.S. doesn't maintain a national registry to record anaphylaxis deaths. But anyway, I think that this is why it's good to only use medications when absolutely necessary. It's better to try natural things first, although a person could possibly be allergic to natural things as well. But Far less often, just like when you look at the number of deaths that occur from medications, it's in the range of 300,000 a year and maybe 2 or 3 million hospitalizations. But if you're and ha- you look at herbs and supplements, you're looking at 50 deaths a year. I mean, there are many decimal points difference here. Yeah. And that's why natural things are much safer to use and, of course, should be used But if you initially. think if you think you're having an allergic reaction or, heaven forbid, anaphylaxis, you don't want to start messing around then with natural methods. You want to get to the hospital. You want to get some adrenaline or you could die from that. Well, that's I right. know somebody that died from that. She had asthma. And she thought by meditating and by doing natural oh, things, she was it was going to pass, and she died. Yeah, so. well, there are times to do a lot of different things. And what's the sign of a good doctor? Knowing when to do what. 
And that takes a lot of experience. That's why we go to medical school for so many years and have internships and residencies and go into practice. And after 15 or 20 years of practice, you're going to know a lot more than when you came out of your residency and think you know everything because you're red hot on the latest literature that's out there. So so do we want to talk about allergy tests? Oh, there are all different kinds of allergy tests can be done. I mean, the skin tests or the blood tests, and then there are tests like you needed to be able to find out what was wrong with you when you had about 28 anaphylactic reactions about 25 years ago that nearly put you down. Yeah. And what we did is we did a test called the ELISA ACT test. It's a blood test, and it showed I was having delayed reactions. But they were anaphylactic still. Yeah. And, it's, and even today, that's not looked at by the allergists very often. But the ELISA ACT test is something that is a, a test that can identify things that are different mechanisms of actions than the normal anaphylactic reactions, which are mediated by IgE antibodies. So... There are lots of different ways to look at, at uh, what's happening. And then to do something to clean up the environment so we're not exposed to all this stuff, particularly people who have asthma, coming in all the time to see me to say, what can I do, what drug should I use? And it's like, wait a minute, let's clean up your environment first. And yeah, like the pesticides <laughs> that I was talking about earlier with my tip. Yes, and also all the things that are in your cosmetic list. You have a list of healthy skincare products and cosmetics and household cleaning agents that everybody should have. And people don't take that seriously enough, but 60% of what you put on your skin is absorbed into your bloodstream. Exactly. So we've got something here uh, that we need to pay more attention to. So wouldn't you be shocked if all of a sudden you started throwing up blood or you had massive life-threatening rectal bleeding without warning? Mm-hmm. Now, we all too often don't take medication side effects seriously, especially when you listen to the flowering music on TV. When if they you did, you'd have to be insane to take most of those things. But the NSAIDs, the non anti-inflammatory drugs that we talk about all the time, Motrin, Advil, Aleve, all that class of drugs. Sure. There's Celebrex, I mean, there's all a of them. ton of them. They can increase the risk of upper GI bleeding. Oh, for sure. And the risk is significantly higher if you take an NSAID with other drugs. Right. And again, this can be most common in the elderly who are often on multiple medications. Like, for example, say you're, you take an, an NSAID. Say you're going to go pop a ibuprofen. Uh-huh. And then your doctor puts you on a steroid or Plavix, which oh. is an anticoagulant. Right, or aspirin. This can just spell disaster when these are given in combination. Because the effects, are, they go up much more commonly when you're taking more than one. And sometimes it causes paradoxical reactions. So, for example, if you're taking aspirin with, an N, with another NSAID, it wipes out the anticoagulant effect that you were looking for to prevent that heart attack or stroke. Okay, if you've had a previous problem and you're using aspirin as an anticoagulant. And contrary to that with the others... It accelerates things. So when you're taking it with the drugs that you mentioned, uh, it becomes a disaster, and the seriousness of the bleeding can be massive. And, you know, um, these NSAIDs, and then we're talking in combination with the other drugs too, but just to remind people, besides the bleeding, they can cause renal failure, heart attacks, strokes, ulcers, and perforations. Oh, yeah, so. just a small thing like that. This, is, <laughs> this drug is, is one of the drugs that are my pet peeves. I know, I don't and people think, do not take them seriously enough. They, they don't want to believe it because everybody well, they want else do, w- takes it. The answer is, what do I do for my pain? What do I do for my pain? Because it works. Well, it does work. 
But it works in ways where, like you said, it kills 30,000 people a year in this country. And puts 300,000 in the hospital. Yeah, so you're looking at some things here that are a big deal. I had one friend who came to see me a couple of months ago who had been in Europe, had some back pain, and took Advil for about uh, three weeks. And when he came back, we did some blood work, and he was in renal failure because it kills the kidney. And it's probably the most common cause of renal failure in the U.S. And nobody ever hears about it. No, well, I mean, the drug companies may mention it with the sweet music at the end of an ad, but nobody's listening to that because they're looking at what? Just the positive beneficial effects. Well, some of the other medicines that can also cause bleeding, and especially when they're combined with the NSAIDs, they up your risk of it, would be things like Coumadin and heparin mm-hmm. and prednis- uh, diuretic yes. aldactone. Uh-huh. We mentioned the other ones, I think, the Plavix and the mm-hmm. NSAIDs. But well, and then, even fish oil and ginkgo biloba can be a problem. Well, Those we don't are natural. Really, we don't know because the studies haven't been done, but you'd have to suspect it would be additive. Because but, they thin your blood. See, so. In my practice, nobody gets an NSAID. So what are some alternatives? Don't... We should talk give people a choice here. Well, if you need something as an anticoagulant, or no, bro, for you pain. mean for pain. Now you're looking at acupuncture and chiropractic and infrared light therapy and or a photonic stimulator. Electromagnetic pulse uh, field generators can be very effective. In fact, we use those in my practice on a regular basis now, and the results are stellar. Physical therapy can be good. Sometimes an orthopedic procedure needs to be done uh, as a surgery, but not commonly. DMSO is a great way to treat it. So there's a whole panoply of ways that you can treat the pain that we experience uh, from all kinds of injuries and aging things that we get and with our backs and necks. sometimes just icing or heat sure. can help. Sure. You have somebody who has a burn. What's the treatment of choice for that? DMSO. Absolutely. Within 30 seconds, 30 seconds, almost any kind of, of, of burn, first, second, or third degree, is going to be gone in 30 seconds if you douse it in DMSO, which is one of the best-kept secrets in the world. I think everybody in their medicine cabinet should have a supply of DMSO. Yeah, I have it in in all the bathrooms. I have it mm-hmm. in the trunk of the car. I yeah. have it in my horse's stall. <laughs> well, remember last time I burned my hand with hot soup and I had blisters yeah. within five minutes. We got, within that five-minute period, uh, some DMSO on it. The pain instantly left, never came back, and it healed much, much better than I thought it would. So, so there are plenty of, of, of choices out there of other things that you can do besides risking your your life and your quality of life. All right, we're at the end of the show and want to remind you that we'll be back to talk about what's new in the news and health the first and third Mondays of every month on prn.fm and drsabuda.com from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Prescriptions for Health will also be available 24-7 on prn.fm. And if you enjoyed today's radio show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the drsaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life. Amen. Thank you.